Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Housing and homelessness have never been worse, as we all know. Nowhere is it more evident than in this report released today, explosive and scandalous mismanagement of BC housing. Frankly, a report that nobody would have known about if it hadn't been leaked by a whistleblower. Why should anyone believe that he wasn't aware of the gross mismanagement at BC happening that was happening right under his nose? What is the solution to homelessness? The obvious answer is homes. But the reality is much more complicated, and people have been dedicating themselves to finding real solutions for a long time. In British Columbia, two people have been particularly committed to this cause. One was the head of a woman's nonprofit, and the other the CEO of a provincial housing agency. They were united by shared passions for helping the disadvantaged. And then they fell in love. But somehow it all took a very wrong turn, leading to scandal, brown envelopes dropped on reporters' doorsteps, leaked text messages, a defiant chairperson refusing to step down, and accusations that housing mismanagement may have caused a tragic fire. All of that leading to the debate that you just heard from the B.C. legislature. 
Today, Cherie Suturin brings you a story from BC where two well-intentioned housing CEOs were found to have broken the rules with disastrous consequences. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Graham Reed, Jeff Mitchell, Mel Moss, Sarah Bingler, Kathleen Cranfield, Megan Knight, Wendy Thompson, and Mandy. Hi, I'm Mandy Gelfand, a high school teacher living in Victoria, BC, and I support Candleland because their shows often provide inspiration for nuanced and challenging discussions of Canadian news, media, and culture with my students and my peers. I also appreciate that both the organization and their journalists are dedicated to transparency, introspection, and growing with their listeners. A few months ago, a scandal broke out in British Columbia. The CEO of a Crown Corporation was found to be giving preferential treatment to his wife's housing nonprofit. From the outside, it seemed kind of juicy, but not a huge deal in the grand scheme of government-related fuck-ups. No one was profiting from all of this. And when it comes to social housing, a nonprofit being given more projects, well, that's not usually a bad thing. But then I got a message from my former colleague out in Vancouver, reporter Jen St. Dennis. She said that there was so much more to the story than people were hearing in the news. She said that reporters in BC had actually been trying to highlight the problems between Atira and BC housing for almost 10 years, and that she had been targeted for trying to draw attention to these issues. And she said that in the decades since reporters first pointed out the problem, she had found that conditions in Atira housing had deteriorated, and there were allegations that mismanagement may have led to a deadly fire. All while it became the largest and most well-funded housing nonprofit in the province. She said that no one had yet connected the dots from the past to the present to give the full story of a decade of mismanagement and secrecy. So that's exactly what we're going to do. I am Jen St. Dennis. I am a reporter at the TAI. Jen, can you describe some of what your work has been at the TAI? So I was hired at the TAI in the summer of 2020 um, to report exclusively on the downtown east side neighborhood. And the downtown east side is a neighborhood in Vancouver. It's the lowest income neighborhood in Vancouver. Um, It's a place where residents are struggling with a lot of different problems with extreme levels of poverty. Uh, Many people are struggling with addiction and drug use and also a lot of people struggling with health conditions. So it's a neighborhood that can be very close-knit and where people help each other out a lot, but also where people are struggling with some pretty serious problems. The downtown east side has a lot of one type of housing called single-room occupancy, or SROs. SROs used to be old hotels, built around the turn of the century for travelers and temporary workers. The rooms are small and share communal bathrooms. But in modern times, they became a source of housing for low-income people. Back in 2007, the world was about to shine a spotlight on Vancouver. The 21st Olympic Winter Games in 2010 are awarded to the city of Vancouver. With the world's media coming to town, the pressure was on to project a bright, shiny image. People living on the street in the downtown east side 
weren't supposed to be part of that image. So the province bought up a lot of the old hotel stock in an attempt to get the homeless off the streets. BC Housing was the Crown Corporation in charge of developing and administrating this housing. And they brought on several nonprofit organizations to help manage them. One of those nonprofits was Atira Women's Resource Society. They operated transitional housing for women fleeing from domestic violence. And under the leadership of then CEO Janice Abbott, they began to get into managing social housing. They had a for profit arm called Atira Property Management Incorporated, which distributed their profits back to the charity. APMI took on management of 13 SROs. Can you tell me about Janice Abbott? Have you met her? I've interviewed her a lot over the years. She's always been a really forthright, plain-spoken person who was really good at talking to media about these really hard issues like homelessness um, and how hard it is to find housing for people. She was a great source over the years to talk about those issues. And she would often, you know, have this very, clearly had a huge passion for these issues and um, at times had a lot of anger at, at, at the system, at, you know, the, the government maybe that not helping enough or just the systems that kept people in poverty. Janice Abbott was forthright about the issues facing the people she served through Atira. In one interview, she said that she would rather hire people with lived experience than a university degree because of their ability to relate to the people they served. But I decided almost as soon as I started working there that we would focus on women who had lived experience. Mostly because women with lived experience have the ability to empathize. They've they've been in that place. They've walked in that place before. Janice applied that same thinking to running the SROs for low-income people. She was also involved in city initiatives to address homelessness. Reporter Frances Bueller was on the housing beat at the time, and she says that's where Janice and her future husband got to know each other, on a committee put together by then-Mayor Gregor Robertson. I mean, they obviously knew each other because he was the head of... BC Housing and and she was running, you know, one of the services, but they were in these meetings, you know, nonstop together. As Gregor Robertson was saying, he was going to, you know, eliminate homelessness. And he had this task force of about, I don't know, a dozen people who were meeting pretty intensively. So who is Shane Ramsey, the former head of BC Housing? So Shane has been in the BC housing sector for years and years and years. He was involved in BC Housing as an executive for a number of years in the 90s. And then in 2000, he became CEO of BC Housing. And he was CEO for a really long time, for 22 years. So from 2000 to the summer of 2022. Shane is really known as someone who was able to kind of get housing built in environments where, you know, that that might have been difficult. He was able to work with whoever was in power, like whichever government in power, Shane was able to form relationships with them. So he's someone who was really able to kind of work, work, this, work his connections, um, which, is, which is very common in the housing sector. It's, it's a sector where people are, you know, they're making deals, they're, they're trying to get things done. And, and again, just like Janice, fueled by passion for housing people. By 2010, they were married. And concerns about their relationship being a potential conflict of interest were brushed aside. You know, back in those early days, there were always concerns about how it looked. You know, it just didn't look good. And this man who used to be a columnist for the Vancouver Courier, Alan Garr, like he wrote a column in 2011 or 2012 saying, this just doesn't smell good. Like they should do something about it. And I think the problem was 
people wanted Shane to be at BC Housing because he's a very creative, skillful, talented, you know, like housing developer. And I think there was a certain feminist opinion that like, well, why should Janice have to quit? Like, why does the wife have to quit? You know, why doesn't he quit? So this story kind of sounds a lot like two do-gooders who wanted to end homelessness, falling in love over their shared passion. And even if there was a potential conflict of interest, it's kind of hard to hate on this relationship. Under Janice's leadership, Atira was taking on many SROs with the aim of getting homeless people housed. And Shane was this guy who could get along with anyone in his mission to build up housing stock for low-income folks. But then came a CBC investigation in 2012. It was the first to take a close look at the situation. Reporters Kathy Tomlinson and Eric Rankin revealed concerning conditions at Atira-operated SROs. Workers at the hotels referred to them as crack shacks and brothels. It appears the Housing Society became squeezed between underfunding from the province and overzealousness by the city to get the homeless off the streets. Eric Rankin has been looking at the perfect storm that swamped Atira. The province is purchasing 10 single-room occupancy hotels in Vancouver. It began with such promise five years ago, the province announcing it was buying up troubled downtown Eastside hotels, taking over more every year, and turning the management of 13 over to Atira. Kathy and Eric's reporting really brought that to the public's attention more because Kathy was talking to all of these employees and residents of these SROs who were bringing up these concerns about... Workers were talking about safety concerns. They were talking about how many of their colleagues that they were working with were using drugs on the job and and to the point that they were not able to really help them in the work. The residents were complaining that the buildings were really dirty, overrun with pests, and that they were dangerous, that there was a lot of organized crime, drug dealing activity in the building that was leading to violence. And at the time, Janice Abbott strongly said that, you know, these buildings really need to be renovated. We need government money to do that. Janice Abbott responded to the problems cited in the CBC report, saying there was no money to make improvements to housing. She called out the province for lack of funding. The CBC report was also one of the first to mention the conflict of interest between Atira's CEO and BC Housing CEO. Kathy in her reporting really emphasized this, this conflict of interest and was really questioning, you know, is this okay? And She and Eric went to Rich Coleman, who was the housing minister at the time, to ask him if he was okay with this. And Rich Coleman was really, you know, strongly supportive of them. He said, you know, I I trust Shane and Janice. They came to me right away when they started dating and I knew about this. And there is a conflict of interest screen in place, a special document that lays out the rules of how they're supposed to conduct themselves. But despite the assurances of the housing minister, there were still concerns about this relationship. Like in 2014, when the Vancouver Sun reported that Atira had to be bailed out by BC Housing for amassing over $800,000 in deficits. Janice told the Sun that she had hesitated going to BC Housing to get the necessary funding, specifically because of the optics surrounding the potential conflict of interest. Ten years after those first stories were published, Jen St. Dennis was reporting on the downtown east side for the Taiyi. And she found the conditions of the Atira-run SROs had not changed. In fact, they may have gotten worse. It 
we found a few things that are a little bit unusual compared to how other nonprofit housing providers run their buildings, their SROs. Um, so the first thing was the sheer number. Now they run 18 SROs. And that compares to a number more like between four and eight SROs is more like what other nonprofits run. They were also doing this with a workforce that was often being hired directly from the downtown Eastside community. And those workers were being paid much less than other workers at other supportive housing buildings, including SROs. So there was this really stark differential in the, in the rate of pay that people were being paid. It was like $10 less than you'd make at another SRO. Um, we also found that, you know, it's a great idea to hire from the community and provide employment, but it, a lot of the workers lived in other APMI-operated SROs. So they were essentially, their landlord and their employer were the same. And so that was also seemed to create some problems. And then the other thing we started hearing about was just that there was just a really complete lack of training. We heard from some workers that they had actually done their own naloxone training. And naloxone is a drug that is used to reverse overdoses. Overdoses happen a lot in the SROs. Most workers are having to deal with them. And so... I heard from one worker, for instance, that she had to go on, to, on YouTube to like watch a YouTube video about how to administer naloxone because she didn't get that training before she started her first shift. Right. And it seems like, especially that environment, that's something that you would really need. It's something you would really need. Yes. Yeah. And another thing, and I think this is actually common to a lot of housing providers, uh, well, we heard a lot of complaints about single staffing. So people would be the sole person on duty. And that at times was extremely dangerous. There was one incident at the Gastown Hotel where somebody was stabbed, um, a couple people were stabbed, one person died. And the one person on staff that night had to, you know, call the ambulance, but also was like trying to fend off the person who was attacking the other people. Like just, you just hear about situations where you think, wow, that's really dangerous. And another person on duty probably would have really helped in that situation. What is it like to live in one of these buildings? Like what's life like there? Uh, it can be a little chaotic. It, these buildings, you know, often have really, really narrow hallways. Uh, people are often doing drugs in the middle of the hallway. Um, sometimes it can be really noisy at times. Um, but people also have often have like really strong connections with their neighbors. Um, so they're often, you know, they know who everybody is who lives in their building. Um, they kind of know what's going on with them. So these buildings, they can be very chaotic places. And there can be a lot of violence happening within the buildings because they are kind of extremely linked to the illicit drug market. But at the same time, often some of the tenants have lived there for years and years and years and know their neighbors really well. And in terms of building maintenance, like how is that being maintained? It's always a challenge in the SROs because first of all, they're old. They have old plumbing systems. Um, and then you might have people living in them who are either because of whatever reason, they might be just violent or they might be having severe mental health episodes and they might be damaging the building. And that's very common. So there's a bunch of different you know, challenges that are going on with maintaining the SROs. It is very, very challenging because um, there is constant maintenance that has to be done. In the years since Atira had signed their first contract, the number of SROs they had taken on had grown, and by 2020, they were running 18 SROs and looking at more. But many had raised concerns about the conditions of the housing and that workers' wages seemed lower compared to similar jobs. Ultimately, Jen's reporting caught the attention of Atira, and not in a good way. In 2021, she had just completed some reporting on dangerous working conditions in Atira buildings. When someone alerted her, 
she was not welcome in those buildings anymore. I heard from my sources that my picture had been posted in all of the Atira buildings. And so it's a picture of my headshot and it says Atira-wide ban. And it talks about how I have been going into these buildings and talking to tenants and how this is a problem. And I've been representing myself as an advocate. For, and I'm, I just want to emphasize, I've always represented myself as a journalist. They wrote a very, very long kind of rebuttal to my reporting at some point too, where they kind of accused me of being classist and racist and transphobic and really everything under the sun. I kind of implied that I had been violating people's privacy by coming into the buildings and walking around and talking to people. I just want to emphasize that it's, yeah, it's extremely important for us to be able to get inside the buildings when we're hearing about complaints because people who live in poverty and might have problems with addiction or mental health, they're often not believed. So that, that evidence taking photos is really important. In early 2022, Atira posted an extensive statement on their website. They said Jen's reporting was, quote, causing harm. They said her stories were, quote, a thinly veiled attempt to expose Janice Abbott. And they said that it was clinging onto gossip that she was corrupt. There were accusations of Jen's reporting being racist, classist, and sexist. Atira also responded to allegations of the underpaid staff. They said they paid front desk workers between $17 and $19 per hour and gave them generous benefits. But on the same day Atira posted their response to Jen's reporting, another story concerning Atira broke in the Globe and Mail. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Space Squares. You know, like really normal people in outer space. No, it's not. It's brought to you by Squarespace. That makes a lot more sense. The all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. Squarespace lets you stand out with a beautiful website. You can engage with your audience. You can sell anything, your products, the content you create, even your time. I have used Squarespace. I have designed a couple of websites with it and, um, like it's just so easy. You just you just pluck a custom template. They look beautiful and pretend like you invented it. You didn't. You just typed your own information into a pre-made custom template, drop in your own graphics, and boom, you've got your own website. And then email campaigns, search engine optimization tools. Check out squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again... That's squarespace.com slash CanadaLand, offer code CanadaLand. Francis Bueller reported that there was an audit done of Atira four years previously. The report had never been made public. It was leaked to Bueller in a brown envelope. It was one of those things where it really was a brown envelope, <laughs> left on my doorstep. <laughs> I was kind of thrilled because, you know, like, it doesn't often really arrive that way. Although I, along with others, including mostly Jen St. Dennis, had been hearing for years, really, about people who had concerns that it just wasn't operating like a normal organization where you knew what the rules were and, you know, who was in charge of what and who really, you know, there was the sense that there were secret pathways. According to the audit, Atira was late with financial reporting, there were running deficits, there was overall poor financial management. Then several BC housing staffers began talking to reporters like Jen. But what these staffers started telling me was that Shane repeatedly broke the conflict of interest rules. And these were multiple staffers. I think I talked to about three or four people initially. 
And they were all telling me the same thing. And it was just that it was repeated. This 2018 financial review that they had commissioned was actually an attempt to kind of bring to light some of these problems. I talked to a former BC housing staffer who tried to raise these concerns in 2010 or 2011, which is really far back. You know, he would be called into a meeting with Shane Ramsey where Shane would discuss something to do with the TIRA and he would say things like this meeting never happened. And that man, that executive, he went to the board and that's what he was supposed to do. He went to the, the board chair and complained about it. Well, then, you know, his workplace became a bit harder and he ended up quitting. He was kind of felt that he had been pushed out. That happened to staffer after staffer that I talked to, that people who raised concerns about this were either fired or pushed out of the organization. And so that happened from 2010 right up until, you know, the 2018 to kind of 2020 period that people were kind of had this climate of fear that if they spoke out against this, that there would be a punishment. The problems with Atira and BC Housing were building. And by this time, Atira had become the largest manager of social housing in the province, collecting $35 million more than the next highest funded housing nonprofit. It was also the one that received the most complaints. Then one day, an Atira-operated SRO called the Winters Hotel caught on fire. I was yelling, oh, fire, fire, people get out, we're not going to put this out. We heard fire and then I, I looked out and I seen the fire coming out of the window. I overheard people screaming that there was no fire extinguishers and the fire extinguishers that were there were empty. And then from that point I knew we weren't going to put it out because there was no more fire extinguishers, no water, we had nothing, nothing around. On April 11th, 2022, the Winters Hotel burned to the ground. Just a few days prior, there had been another small fire in the building, which prompted fire services being called. But in the process of putting out the flame, the sprinkler system and fire alarms were disabled, and fire extinguishers were used up. They were not turned back on. Three days later, tragedy struck. Many former residents of the hotel have recounted to Jen the alarming series of events that led to the tragedy. And so this is something I first heard from tenants who tried to fight the fire, that they ran around the building looking for a fire extinguisher to put out the fire. But they kept on finding that the fire extinguishers were empty. So if you can imagine, you know, you see a fire, and it was relatively small, they said, at the time that they found it in this room. If you can imagine running to one end, grabbing a fire extinguisher, trying to use it, and it being empty, running to the other end, grabbing a fire extinguisher finding it empty as well, finally grabbing a mop bucket, trying to use that. People were running out to go across the street to another SRO called the Dominion to see if they could get fire extinguishers there. So it was a frantic effort to get the fire under control, but just there was just no tools. And then the fire itself getting out of control, the stories that people told were just absolutely horrific. People told stories of they were crawling on the floor because they were trying to get under the smoke and they had blisters on their arm because the floor was so hot. People talked about walking through walls of flame to get out. Um, and people talked about, a lot of people woke up. They, they were sleeping at the time of the fire. It happened around 10 or 11 in the morning. They talk about waking up into just thick black smoke and being totally disoriented. And some people were able to get their animals out, but a lot of people lost pets in the fire. And they're still heartbroken about that. You mentioned like the sprinklers off, the alarms off extinguishers gone 
whose responsibility was it to make sure those things were back and running? It was the responsibility of Atira property management staff. The Winters Hotel fire claimed the lives of two tenants. Marianne Garlow was 68 and a residential school survivor known for her devotion to her son. And Dennis Guy was 53, a passionate musician, despite having hearing loss from a young age. According to Jen, the building was also supposed to be on a fire watch, which is an order from the fire department to have someone patrol every so often on the lookout for fires. Atira maintains they did put the Winters Hotel on a fire watch. But Jen has heard otherwise from several people who were on the ground that day. So the fire department says that they investigated and that the fire watch was being done. However, I talked to 13 tenants and four business owners who say that they did not see regular patrols. They were not informed that the building was on fire watch and they did not see any notices posted, which you're all supposed to do if there's a fire watch. And I also have reported that the front desk clerk who was working on April 11th, the day that the fire started, did not know that the fire alarm was off. In the months that followed the fire, the real story about what had been happening behind the scenes at BC Housing began to unfold. A report commissioned by the province said there were problems with BC Housing's financial decision-making that it was handing out multi-million dollar contracts with no formal criteria, and that the CEO would sometimes award contracts unilaterally. Days later, the BC government sends out a press release announcing the entire board of BC Housing had been fired. Then just a few months after that, old text messages from Shane to an employee surfaced. Shane appears to suggest Atira should take on several more projects. Finally, in March 2023, third-party firm Ernst & Young released a second report digging into the relationship between Atira and BC Housing. The report said that Ramsey, quote, repeatedly involved himself in matters related to Atira through other BC Housing employees. It also said that Atira used $2 million in restricted funds that were to go back to BC Housing to help purchase another SRO building. The report also said that Atira asked for BC Housing money to buy a new property, but the property value was overestimated. And in one instance, meeting minutes were edited to change an executive's concerns around a potential Atira project. That was quickly followed by reports on the existence of a second Ernst & Young report, which had not yet been released to the public. And just a month later, Shane Ramsey stepped down from his position. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free 
with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and uh, it's available here in Canada. And this time of year, we're all emerging from our, our winter like seclusion and uh, you know patio season and, and socializing, and it can be terrifically fun, but it can also create a lot of pressure. And some people get like anxiety, social anxiety from being out too much. What did Iggy Pop say about social life? It's torture dressed as fun. It doesn't need to be torture. I think it's just about finding like the right balance uh, of, of how much of other people do you want. I mean, we need each other, but I think that at a certain point it can become overwhelming and talking to somebody about yourself, about your social life, about your relationships um, is a way of gaining insight into what is right for you. It's not selfish to examine that with a professional. And as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Listeners of the show get 10% off of their first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's Better H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. So almost a decade after the first concerns were reported about BC housing in Atira, five years after the secret report and Atira's finances were completed, and over a year after the winter's fire, this conflict of interest was finally being investigated. Yeah, so the investigation report found that, indeed, Shane Ramsey had been breaking the conflict of interest rules repeatedly for years, for years, since 2010, since they had gotten married. And it also found that this led to basically BC Housing being unable to kind of really have proper financial oversight over these spending decisions. And it highlighted just how much more money Atira has gotten over the years recently compared to other nonprofit housing providers. Atira has gotten $35 million more in 2022 than its next highest funded housing provider. It also found that Shane Ramsey and this other BC housing executive, Abbas Baradawala, had deleted texts and they were not supposed to be doing that. They've been told to keep all records, but they had deleted texts. And in addition, it found evidence that, you know, Shane was well aware that he was breaking the rules, that he would make comments like, you know, if anybody asks, say this is your idea. The report also found that Atira had asked for BC housing money to buy new properties but the value of those properties would often be overestimated. Other times, the building's assessed maintenance costs would be undervalued, or minutes changed to make it seem costs were lower than they were. For one of those property transactions, for it's a building called 303 Columbia, Shane Ramsey actually pressured a BC housing executive to change his vote, whether or not to help Atira buy the property, and then changed meeting minutes to kind of soften this executive's criticism of the project and of the deal. So those are some of the things that the investigation found. It was pretty, you know, it was pretty eye-opening. It was pretty, it was actually pretty shocking, the level of, of activity that had been happening. The B.C. government was in an uproar. During question period on the day the report was released, Premier David Eby was met with harsh criticism. Housing and homelessness have never been worse, as we all know. Nowhere is it more evident than in this report released today, explosive and scandalous mismanagement of BC housing. Frankly, a report that nobody would have known about if it hadn't been leaked by a whistleblower. Why should anyone believe that he wasn't aware of the gross mismanagement at BC Happening that was happening right under his nose? 
I would remind the Premier that at the Winters Hotel, there was a fatal fire that killed two people and displaced hundreds of others. And that BDO report that this Premier wants to dismiss warned the Premier about the dysfunction of Atira. And it said this, it led staff to, quote, look for ways to reduce the pressure on cash flow with other downstream consequences, end quote. It should come as no surprise to this Premier that FOI documents revealed that fire extinguishers at the Winters Hotel were empty and had not been replaced by staff. The Premier responded. This is the first time in 30 years a report has been released in this manner. We're proud of that. But we do not accept the conduct that took place at BC Housing. And our work is not yet done. We have more work to do with the Tyrion. We'll do that. In the days after the report was released, Atira's CEO and its board were defiant. The board refused to fire Janice Abbott, citing there was no wrongdoing found in the report. In a statement on their website, Atira maintained there was no financial impropriety and no attempt to personally gain by any executives. And this is true. Neither Abbott nor the board personally profited from any of that provincial funding. But days later, the board folded and Abbott stepped down. And two weeks after that, 500 workers at over 35 Atira Women's Resource Society work sites voted to unionize. You'd think a scandal like this would be rare in the world of provincial social housing. But when I talked to Frances Bula, she mentioned that something similar had actually happened before, multiple times. Bear with me on this aside. I promise it's worth it. I've seen this happen more than once. Like the first one that went down was the Downtown Eastside Residents Association. The Downtown Eastside Residents Association was a large player in the BC public housing scene, and they had been around since the 70s and 80s. It was the first real nonprofit housing organization down there. In 2010, the Downtown Eastside Residents Association faced accusations they had mishandled funds and had half a million dollars in unpaid property taxes and rent. Then, just a few years later, came a scandal involving the Portland Hotel Society, or PHS, who eventually became one of the largest housing providers in BC. They famously started Insight, Canada's first standalone supervised injection site. And they were co-directed by a married couple, Mark Townsend and Liz Evans. The couple wanted to change the way homeless people were housed. Before Mark and Liz came along with the Portland Hotel, a lot of people became homeless because they were living in social housing and they were just too problematic and they'd get kicked out. And the social housing providers would feel like, well, not our problem. We're just trying to run, you know, a decent building. And really, Mark and Liz started the whole thing of saying, um, uh, you know, even if someone's behavior is problematic, you can't just kick them out on the street. And both the Liberals and the NDP tended to favor them. Like, you know, the PHS really grew under the Liberals. And by the way, it was Shane Ramsey overseeing them. But then in 2014, a scandal. The audit into the Portland Hotel Society was made public today, and there are some shocking examples of things being expensed by executives and paid for by taxpayers, including a trip to Disneyland, which NDP MLA Jenny Kwan was on. Some of the other questionable expenses include 
$8,657 in limousine charges by an executive, $8,323 for a trip to the UK, $7,024 for a celebration of life for a deceased employee. It may have operated as a non-profit society, but the audit alleges many were making high salaries and taking advantage of travel and expense accounts. The two directors maintained they had never profited, and the funds were used to raise support for Insight. The society's executive director says the money for the perks came from donations, not taxpayers. As for travel... We had to engage people around the world and across the world to help us with Insight. We could have never won that battle on our own without those people helping us. In the last couple of decades, nonprofit after nonprofit has tried to make change in the downtown east side, and they've all ended up embroiled in scandal. After PHS fell from grace, it was Atira that became the major player in BC social housing. And that takes us right back to where we left off. You know, what's frustrating for me is that Kathy Tomlinson and Eric Rankin's reporting at CBC in 2012 pointed out these problems with how workers were being trained at Atira managed SROs. You know, SROs are hard to run. Like, that's, there's no question. But training and paying your employees properly seems like something that could have been tried, you know, in the years, in the intervening years. And then for me to go and basically report the same story that Kathy and Eric had reported in 2012, to report basically the same story in 2021, that workers were not being trained properly, that they were being paid much, much less than other workers, that there just what didn't seem to be a response from the company. Workers were coming to the company like repeatedly talking about these problems. It should have been well known. That there just hadn't been anything done in those intervening years was, I found, just quite upsetting. I think there's a larger pattern here of people wanting to provide housing to the homeless, coming in with passion and ambition to make change. And that passion might have justified flaunting the rules, because at the end of the day, they were just doing the right thing, right? And it seemed like provincial leaders seemed to agree. It looks like they were relying on these nonprofits to save the day and looked away when problems were flagged. It's people who are working really hard to do what they believe is the right thing. And they come to believe that, you know, some rules are just, we don't need to pay attention to those because we know we're doing the right things. I mean, it's a sign of our, our social services that, you know, government after government, provinces and cities, they do the same thing. They turn to particular nonprofits. Oh, you're gonna save us. You're gonna help us get out of this terrible situation. They don't fund them properly, but they let these, you know, kind of mission-driven people run them. And for a while it works. And then, you know, with some of them, they fall apart. Shane Ramsey and Janice Abbott did not respond to our request for comment by press time. That is your Canada land. If you value this podcast, please support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, we want to give you so many things. Premium access to our shows, ad-free. 
early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. Come say hi, meet us, all of this stuff. But more than anything, by becoming a supporter, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Come join us now. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Cherie Suturin with help from Jen St. Denis and Francis Bula. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. <laughs>